Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new season of Opera After Dark. Woo! Yay! Yay! Season five. We're still here. Still here. I have to say, I was thinking earlier today that after four seasons of Opera After Dark, it, like four years is a substantial amount of time. That's like a you know an undergraduate degree in Opera After Dark. True, true. Pretty much. So for everybody that's listened to four years worth of episodes, we'll be mailing your uh, your diplomas <laughs> very soon. Keep an eye out for that. Do you think that we've taught people enough to equal a bachelor's in music? I don't know. About, I don't know about a bachelor's in music, <laughs> but like a certain subset, like a a degree in classical music oddities and history. I sure. like that. Classical music oddities. I, I feel like I, we're missing some of the larger components of a music degree, like music theory and musical skills. And Yes, you know, but I will say, I feel like I've learned more about music history throughout the duration of this podcast than I did in my music degree. And you read oh. into that what you will. <laughs> Gonna but, say, I'm not sure if that warms my heart or makes me sad. Should probably <laughs> like do a little bit of both. Makes me sad, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of both. <laughs> that's fine. And I have to take some ownership in that as well. This is a lot more fun than my music history classes. So that's part of it. Well, good. We yeah. do get to explore the oddities that are really only just like a passing sentence sometimes in a music history course. So that's always fun. Yeah, definitely. And it can be like, we're still a pretty concentrated amount of time, you know, in, in music history courses that try to give you like all of Western music history in some way, shape or form. But we're really in this, I mean, in this podcast, we've been what, uh, from like early 1500s through present day? Hey, we've gone back to the Middle Ages with Hildegard. That's true. You know what? You're right. You're right. <laughs> hey, I saw actually today, I saw somebody posted online. There was a, like this Italian book of arias and art songs by female composers. And yes. the publisher that was listed on there was like Hildegard Publishing. Mm. And I was like, that has to be a reference to Hildegard von Bingen. Like, come oh, on. yeah. Has to be. So, oh, yes. yeah, somebody's got to check that out. If if you have it, let us know what's, what's inside. What's the deal? <laughs> I mean, I will say that we do have kind of pockets of time in music history that we have not explored. Like, we've kind of avoided the Renaissance because we haven't really stumbled upon Boring. operatic topics or yeah. too many musical oddities from that time. But, you know, never say never. Fair enough. Well, thank you to everybody who's been listening for all these years. And thank you also for those just joining us for the first time. Hopefully you like it. If you haven't gathered, this is a podcast where we talk about oddities from classical music history. Some fun, sometimes dark, sometimes weird and strange stories. Sometimes scandalous. Oftentimes. Definitely scandalous. scandalous. Yes. We usually aim for scandal. We usually aim for scandal. I have to say that this week our topic doesn't really veer towards scandal, but I think it's an important person and topic to cover because it has been neglected 
in music history for many, many years. And ah, so... So we can add that to mm-hmm. the list. Neglect. Neglect, yes. Neglected <laughs> topics, composers, and pieces. Well, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about a very important composer and the style of music that he helped popularize at the turn of the century from 1800s to 1900s, and also uh, one of his operas that never got performed in his lifetime, um, but had a bit of a comeback in the 70s and is now having a bit of a comeback again, and that is the... King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin. Ooh. Oh, so the only thing I know about Ragtime is the musical Ragtime. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was just ready for like after you say Scott Joplin, it drops into like a. Something like that. Yeah. I, I feel like so the musical. Ev- wait, the musical ragtime is not an accurate representation of ragtime, the musical style. <laughs> I cannot say for sure because I'm not familiar with the whole musical of ragtime. So it's possible that there is a piece or two or three or several in that musical that feature actual legitimate ragtime. But yeah. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. The only piece <laughs> I know, or the excerpt, not. yeah, the excerpt I know from that op, uh, from that uh, musical is that aria. Daddy played piano, played it very well. Yeah, Daddy's son, Audrey McDonald. Yes, yes, it is low. That is a low song. Let me say, not for the sopranos yeah. in the room. I guess it's a low song. Yeah, I mean, not for you because you're a you're a mezzo. But. Elspeth's like, eh, I could do it. Yeah. I mean, I never would because I would never play that character. But. <laughs> right. Sure, sure. That's just the only song I really know from that musical. And so mm-hmm. that song I can pretty definitely say is not ragtime. But well, yeah. what what is ragtime? Oh, great. Dr. Professor Naomi Baratera, explain to us what this musical style is for those of us who don't know such as myself so ragtime is a style of music where really the telling musical aspect of it is that there is a steady beat that is being played kind of in one voice so if you're playing this on a piano it's usually in the left hand but ragtime is not strictly limited to the piano. You could have it in an ensemble, any kind of chamber music, singers, right? But there's one voice, usually the lower voice, that keeps a steady beat. And then against that, you have a syncopated beat happening in the upper voices, all right? So some people think that ragtime is just everything is syncopated, but that's not actually true. You really need the steady, consistent beat in one voice so that the syncopation that's happening in the other voice is very obvious and very present and stands out, right? All right. We're going to need a definition on syncopation. Syncopation. So oh, syncopation is... <laughs> it's one of those things that like, <laughs> when you hear it, you understand, but it's hard to explain in words. Where's our percussion famous spouse when we need him in this opera after dark episode to explain he's, syncopation he's, 
He's moving his car. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually okay. missing right now. Right. He's actually missing. <laughs> He's gone out into the night. No one knows where he shall return. That's very poetic sounding. I mean, he's in the kitchen, but uh, okay, he's doing stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. He's not involved. He's not involved. He's not involved in this. <laughs> okay, I will attempt to explain, and please, my opera after dark colleagues, jump in and correct me if this is not clear or help clarify. So, in musical rhythm, we have ways that we organize rhythm into groups. So we tend to organize rhythm into groups of three or groups of two. And then within that, you can often feel some kind of strong and weak beat. All right. And so if it's in if it's in groups of two, you would have the first beats usually strong and the second beat is weak. So it'd be like one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And then in groups of three, it would be one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. If you had groups of four, which of course are divisible by two, then it would probably be like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So kind of inherent in the way you organize rhythm, strong and weak beats can kind of be part of the organizational feeling. And so syncopation is when you essentially put emphasis on either a beat or part of a beat that is not the strong part of that organizational system. So instead of putting emphasis on beat one and beat three in when you're counting four, you would instead put emphasis maybe on beats two and beats four. So then it would be like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then you can also, sometimes if you think about the fact that you can divide rhythmic beats into smaller units, right? You can divide it in half, then you can divide those in half again. Then you can also emphasize just one part of the beat, right? And if, if it's not the strong first part of the beat or the first division, if it's maybe the second division, right? Then that would give a feeling of kind of an offset feeling. And so syncopation is this idea of of an offset strong rhythmic accent on something that within the context of the piece itself, you feel it as a weak beat, but suddenly there's this strong emphasis on it. Dang. Does that make sense? That was yeah. pretty much perfect as an explanation. Aw, I'm impressed. Guys. <laughs> I, I knew you could do it, but then actually hearing it is like, yep, that's exactly it. All right. I'm sure there's, you know, more nuanced and complex explanations out there. But that's kind of the, the the broad stroke of syncopation. And so in ragtime, you are putting emphasis in the upper voices on these weaker parts of the beat. And in the context of ragtime, since you have the steady beat in the bottom voice, it really stands out this feeling that the the emphasis is offset from the strong beats. And so this becomes really, really popular at the turn of the century, um, especially because this is a time when ragtime is kind of leading into um, early jazz. And so this is also a time where people who had formerly been enslaved in North America were now starting their own kind of free lives, right? And there were, of course, new 
places that they could gather and they could make music together. And certain areas of the world, especially in North America, certain cities become kind of a, a hub for uh, different groups of people of color who were formerly enslaved who are now uh, moving about the world more freely. And so New Orleans is one of those places where um, it's kind of a hub for people to gather. And there's historical reasons for it because New Orleans was one of the only places during the time of slavery that slaves could gather in public in certain places in New Orleans. Um, and so because of that, it becomes a place that people are comfortable going. They're comfortable. They know the area, right? They've met other people there before. And so after slavery ends, there is a kind of uh, emphasis on continuing to go to New Orleans as a gathering place, right? And so that is kind of where both ragtime and jazz sort of pick up popularity. But Scott Joplin was um, kind of the king of ragtime, and he's the one that we really attribute to popularizing the whole style and the form. And ragtime, in addition to a few other influences, kind of evolves into jazz. So it predates jazz. Yeah, right? it's like you don't have jazz if you don't have ragtime right? It's like part right. of the ev evolution. Right. Yes. So Joplin himself did not grow up in New Orleans or even in Louisiana. He grew up in um, Texarkana, Arkansas. And oh. he, yeah, sure. I no idea where that is, but that's where he, I mean, I know where Arkansas is, but I don't know where <laughs> Texarkana is. And so um, this is where he grew up. And during the late 1880s, um, he worked as a railroad laborer, and then he kind of left that job and then initially wanted to get into music somehow. And so he went to Chicago, and it was in Chicago that he kind of started spreading ragtime in a really kind of major way. And he plays a part in introducing ragtime into these different places. And so he kind of moves around a little bit and he's playing in like bars and clubs and that type of thing, right? And he went to Missouri, he ends up going to New York City for a time, and this whole time he's composing ragtime as he's performing and playing at other places. And so he composed a ton of ragtime, but the most popular one that he composed and then later published is called The Maple Leaf Rag. Right. And that one, when he published it, I think it was published around 1899 or so. And he actually cut a deal with the publisher that instead of like selling all of his rights to the piece kind of upfront, which was pretty typical for composers of that time period, he cut a deal where he would get instead a royalty for each piece sold. And this was kind of unheard of, especially for composers of color or musicians of color at the time. And so initially, you might think you didn't get a great deal because it didn't sell immediately super well. It was like a kind of a small run at first. But then as Ragtime became more popular, he got more and more royalties and it like sold over a million copies of Maple Leaf Rag. And so nice. it's something where it was a kind of a steady stream of income for him or some kind of small income that was consistent from that point onward and kind of unprecedented in how he, he got the rights to that kind of royalties. So Maple Leaf Rag is his most popular. We should play a little bit of it because... 
You gotta know Maple Leaf Rag. Oh, everybody uh, does. I don't know what the the copyright law would be. It's probably no longer under copyright, but it would be great if his family was still just like raking it in. It is definitely not under copyright anymore. Oh, right. Yeah. What's the cutoff on that? Is it 100 years or is it like 1915? 70. It varies 70. from country to country. So in the U.S., I believe it's 70 years, like Elspeth said. Um, either from the time of publication or from the death of the composer. Uh, There's like yeah, a... And, a... Unless the composer and his estate has eked out some sort of like really weird ironclad deal. Like the music of Benjamin Britten will never be in public domain. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> it's also why like Mickey Mouse will never be in the public domain because Disney's like right. got that locked, locked down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, in Canada, it's different. In Canada, it's 50 years. So it's a little Ooh. bit shorter. Oh. Yeah. But then there's also this like law in US copyright law where kind of like anything before 1924 is like more or less public domain unless there's some special stipulation because they had to like come up with a cutoff point. I think it's 1924. <laughs> I used to know all these facts. I just pick a date. I was really yeah. sharp and they've, they've kind of disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Where does the name of maple leaf rag come from why is it the maple leaf rag i'm hoping that it has something to do with canada it does not i'm pretty sure it has to do with the name of the venue or the club that he like was known to play it in i'm not 100 percent sure on that but i'm pretty sure that's where the name came from yeah i actually have another question uh so of course scott joplin is is thought of as being like a very prominent composer of ragtime and i'm sure many of the stylistic elements of ragtime are attributed to him but it's still like he's kind of just a known composer of the form it's not like he created it and then it took off or is it like that i mean it's hard to say if he created it because we're pretty certain that it was influenced by all of these different musical traditions that came with people that were brought to the United States enslaved from Africa, right? And so mm-hmm. it's, and people believe that the rhythmic structure of like the syncopation versus the steady rhythm comes from certain clapping traditions and rhythmic traditions. And so associated with vernacular african folk music and so you can't really say that he invented like the ragtime syncopation but he certainly popularized it and brought it to public attention in a way that no one nobody else had right and the other important thing that he did in addition to publishing scores for ragtime was that he actually recorded himself playing ragtime on piano rolls so really early 
recording technology. So if you've ever seen the pianos that look like there's like a phantom playing the piano, yeah, that's actually that. a piano roll where um, you record a person playing something. And then when you put that roll of it's actually like holes punched in paper, right, that then activate a certain mechanism that recreates the depressing of the keys on the piano. And so Scott Joplin recorded piano rolls of himself playing the Maple Leaf Rag and a few other ragtimes. And so we can actually hear what he sounded like playing them, even though it was like very, very early recording technology. And so that's a really important kind of piece of historical media that we have to give us insight into another way that he was popularized as the king of ragtime and as like an authority on composing in that form. And he also really believed that composing ragtime could be elevated to like the level of other virtuosic piano music like Chopin or Liszt, like the way that Chopin was composing like mazurkas or polonaises, which were drawn on Polish folk rhythms and folk musical ideas Joplin was trying to like elevate ragtime to that kind of virtuosic status of piano composition and so he he actually composed more than just ragtimes for piano or small ensembles he actually composed two operas that he tried to integrate ragtime into um, and both are considered very important operas but we actually only have one that has survived so His first opera, which was called A Guest of Honor, uh, was actually confiscated along with a lot of other parts of his estate when he ran into some money troubles in 1903. And so basically, like, the bank stole it or took it as payment. And the score is just lost. Like, we have no record of it from that point onward. And so we don't know what that opera sounded like. But his second opera, Trimanisha did survive and he sadly never got to see it performed in his lifetime so he finished it around i think like 1911 or so and then it was never performed in his lifetime and then it wasn't actually performed for the first time until like the 1970s when it was revived and had a world premiere so it's really important because the story takes place in kind of a, a post, post-slavery post plantation, and it is written by a person who actually had experience with that particular era and culture. And so it's the first opera written by an African-American person that actually tells the story of African-American people um, in this particular time period, right? And so it's hugely important as like a a firsthand testament and account and storytelling by a person who actually lived it. And Scott Joplin was both the composer and librettist for the, for the work. Yeah. Was it based on anything or just his own experiences? So we don't know a hundred percent what his story source was for it. Although there is some speculation that the, main character in the opera, Trimanisha, the title character, was based on Joplin's second wife um, because the main character in the opera is a woman who uh, is is a freed slave and she has been educated to be able to read and write, which was quite rare. And then the whole story revolves around her kind to, trying to sort of free um, 
everybody that she lives with in this kind of post-plantation uh, setting free them from the kind of superstitious practices that are still with them from you know hundreds of years um, being separated from their from their home from their home and so she's trying to appeal to people through education and and logic and kind of learning about the world to try and break these superstitious practices and so. Joplin's second wife was a very well-educated woman of color. And so people think that maybe the story was somehow inspired by her or based on her. And then some people think that maybe some of his own childhood memories might have been rolled into this as well. Um, but there's not there's not a clear statement from the composer himself, like where he got the story from. There's, oh, there's also uh, his third wife. So maybe there's more scandal in this than I, <laughs> than I thought. Um, that his third wife also thought that there were some connections with Trimanisha's desire to like lead her people into a more like enlightened existence, so to speak, and Joplin's desire to like elevate ragtime to the heights of like classical art music, right? So it's a, you know, it's a tenuous connection, but um, yeah, we don't know exactly where the story came from, but there's a lot of speculation that it's drawn from inspirations from his own life, whether it was his, one of his wives or his childhood memories or a combination of all of these things. Do you know, are there any recordings of the opera there's a few there's a recording that's pretty widely available especially you can hear the overture which does feature i believe some ragtime in the overture and then also um the canadian opera company um i think it was sometime in the last five years or so i think did a revival of Trimanisha, and they actually what was the date? Oh, it's actually more recent than that. Just like a, a year or so ago, they were working on this revival and they actually changed the score a little bit and added to it and expanded it because apparently in the original opera, Trimanisha herself, the title character, rarely sings. And most of the singing happens by the men in the opera and they're mm. kind of singing at her or singing about her. Um and so when the Canadian Opera Company performed this opera, when they worked on it, they added some music for the title character. And they also adapted some of the choruses that were originally designed to be all men to include women so that there was a little bit more of a balance of genders in the storytelling. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it was written for a specific person who was not really a singer. Mm. That is an interesting possibility yeah like an excellent actress but just not a skilled singer like he like he wanted to write this work for this person but they weren't really a skilled singer so he was like i can work around this yeah i'll Possibly. make it work maybe it'll be fine i can i can make this i can make this work exactly right and also fun fact scott joplin posthumously won the Pulitzer Prize for Trimanisha when this oh, was nice. revived in the 1970s oh cool so yeah. Is there any music from Trimonisha that people would, would recognize? Like, what are the hits from this piece? I really don't know. So I think the mm. only thing that's kind of widely known, if it is even widely known, would be the overture. And only because it's, like, on YouTube. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I just think that, and and also the fact that, like, the female lead didn't have arias written for her, right? So it's hard to it's hard to have like these hits when like your title character doesn't really have any music solo sections, solo numbers written for her, right? All right. Well, let's listen to some overture. Yeah. I would love it if I was sat down in an opera theater and all of a sudden started hearing some ragtime. That would be cool. Right? I'm all about the mashup of styles. I think I think it's just, it's really interesting to think that Joplin has been sort of, not sort of, very neglected in music history until very, very recently. And so to give you an idea, I'm pretty sure that, so like, a major textbook in music history classes is the history of Western music uh, published by Norton. And they are currently on their 10th edition of this textbook. But for the first four editions, Scott Joplin was not mentioned at all. And ragtime was not at all a part of the textbook and kind of the development of jazz in the early 1900s was just like not at all a part of the textbook. And so it just gives you a sense of kind of how, the perspective of what is important to, to teach and to consider as part of like the development of music has changed over time, right? And people are even now just starting to recognize um, composers of color and other composers from minority groups that have contributed very important things to the development of music, but just haven't been a part of the major narrative, right? So... Yeah, he's he's one of those people that has been neglected for some time, but is starting to come back into kind of the way we think about music history and and teach it as well. So So. what did the rest of his life look like? Like he was successful, right? Even he was successful. But even though he was successful, he tended to have a hard time with money. So he kind of like went back and forth between doing really well and like spending all his money and doing not so well. And he, I think he died penniless. And sadly, he, I think he had dementia in his, in his older age and mm-hmm. uh, brought on by the classic disease of composers. <gasps> he had syphilis? Yeah. Oh man, bringing it back. Let's <laughs> <laughs> oh, throw back to season one. What are um, yeah. what are his dates? So he was born in 1868, and he died in 1917. Man, so he was so, born immediately post slavery in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, and so he wasn't he wasn't that old then. No, and and like a lot of his success really wasn't until like the turn of the century, right? And so mm-hmm. it was really in kind of the last two decades of his life that he really like got to pursue life as a musician and a composer 
So he actually died in New York City um, in Manhattan State Hospital. And he was 48 years old. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people Oof. considered his death the kind of the end of ragtime um, because then it ev- went on to evolve into these these other um, – it evolved into a much more expanded kind of version of jazz, right? There's actually another really cool recording. Um, Jelly Roll Morton, who was a very famous jazz pianist a, a little bit after Joplin, he also recorded on a piano roll – himself playing Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. And it's really interesting if you listen to the two of them side by side because Jelly Roll Morton takes a lot of liberties with the Maple Leaf Rag in a much more like improvised jazz style. Um, and so you can even see in the the time period between these two people, which is actually quite short between when the when the two piano rolls were made, that the style has already kind of begun to evolve into something into something different. So nice. I'm sure we can find that. So we should we should play that as we play out. Yeah, let's go out awesome. to Jelly Roll. Yeah. When I hear good old Jelly Roll Martin. Jelly Roll. I don't know. If this is gonna sound terrible, probably, but I hear Jelly Roll and I want like a jelly donut. Jelly Roll was his stage name. He had a much more. What? Oh, Jelly Roll wasn't his, his, his Christian name. <laughs> it wasn't. You mean that was not the name he was given at birth? <laughs> Sorry, that sounds really like <laughs> like I give you no credit. <laughs> oh, I mean, if the shoe fits, oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. If the shoe fits, you eat a Jelly Roll. <laughs> oh, man. Jelly Roll Morton's birth name was Ferdinand Joseph Lamoth. Ooh. I, oh. I could see why Jelly I... Roll could fit better in, like, you know, jazz and ragtime. Yeah. No, I, I, li- I like Ferdinand. I think that's a, a classy name. Right? Yeah. Fair enough. Well, very nice. Yeah. Well, thanks for introducing us to Scott Joplin, Naomi. You're most yeah. welcome. Some good Thanks stuff. Thanks for doing all the work, Naomi. <laughs> he composed a lot, like t- like so much ragtime and piano music and the two operas. I think he composed a ballet that's probably lost. So he was very, very active and we are lucky to have the remnants that survive of his output today. So, yeah. Very nice. Well, we're going to listen to some imitation of some of his output as we go out. But thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Opera After Dark, our first of season five. And uh, we'll be back with you next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also find us at patreon.com slash operaafterdark. We'd love to have your support there. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.